Welcome to the Rainbow Bull with Tim Volk from T. Volk and Company Consulting. In this podcast, Tim, a proud member of the LGBTQ community, discusses a range of topics around the five capitals of a flourishing family, human, intellectual, social, spiritual, and financial capital. Tim will use this framework as he and his guest experts delve into the secrets of the wealthy and how we might learn from them. So let's get started on this exciting adventure together. Parents usually have high hopes for their children and maybe high expectations, but life happens and parents and children both may need to adapt to reality. In this show, your host Tim Volk talks with author Wesley Davidson about her book, When Your Child is Gay, What You Need to Know. And the title only scratches the surface of the topic that Tim and his guest will tackle today. So, Tim, tell us more about Wesley and how you two met. Oh, my God. It's so fun. You know, life, you never know when you're going to meet somebody new. And I just love that. And so we have a mutual friend, Suzanne Curry, who I was telling one day that I was being encouraged by my brethren to lean into the gay community on my practice and try, you know, because, uh, you know, one of my friends who's a leading advisor, he lives in Jackson, Wyoming, but he's really Swiss. And he speaks five languages, but he acts like a cowboy. Well, he is a cowboy, but he just also is kind of funny. He's like, you know what you need to do, Tim? What you need to do is you just need to be the gay guy we call. Be the gay guy to call. And I just started laughing about it. And then one day when I was talking to a mutual friend of ours, Suzanne, she's like, you know what, Tim? I love the idea. And I think what you need to do is you need to meet a friend of mine. You need to meet Wesley Davidson. I'm going to connect you two. And so lo and behold, we made this wonderful, thoughtful introduction. <laughs> I don't know. We just clicked. I, I think that it's been a delight to to get to know Wesley. And I thought that it would be a wonderful to have her perspective on the show. I think it's fun for us to explore, you know, what it, the perspective of having a gay child and, and, and come from the parent side, because we're always thinking about from the gay person side. And I think that we don't have enough to talk about how the family has to adapt and how the family gets used to it and all the things around it. This goes to, you know, the five capitals that we've discussed Patrice before, which is, you know, for a family to flourish, we have the human capital, the intellectual capital, we have the social, spiritual, and financial capital of the family. And this I believe fits squarely into the human capital that you know we have as a family that we have to continue to develop actively develop it'll touch on all the other capitals you know the social capital being what's what's the wealth for what's it about the spiritual capital is really what what's the value system we have as a family and and um what binds us together so hopefully i think from an audience perspective you'll start to understand how this fits in but um Welcome, Wesley. Thank you. So good to have you. And and yeah, thank uh, you. I I love you know the story. I think it's helpful for people to get to know you a little bit. I know you are uh, grew up in Connecticut, right? Yes, I was born in Philadelphia and lived outside of Philadelphia till 1955. And when my mother remarried, we moved to Connecticut. Love it. How did you uh, and then you had a, an interesting background because you you've if you've always wanted to be a journalist, if you always wanted to be an author. I always did well in English, Tim. In fact, I went to a um, 
girls school where I won a prize in the eighth grade for an essay I wrote. So I did well in English, horribly in math, but uh, well in English. And uh, after I got out of college, I uh, worked in some art galleries and I did some uh, public relations writing for them, press releases, so forth. And then I decided to delve further. And after college, I went to NYU and took a lot of courses and went into advertising and public relations. Well, it's a, it's a great, it's a natural journey in a way, but it doesn't, yes, it when you're in the middle of it, it may not seem natural, but looking back yeah. at it, it seems yeah. like a natural. And I was an art history major and I think visually, and that, oh. that helps in my writing. Because you can see it. Yes. How did you meet your husband? I met my husband in New York. Uh, he's from the South and he came up to New York to work in finance and uh, he came up to New York uh, after being in the army and he um, met me at a party through uh, a mutual friend, worked with my husband and my husband uh, wanted to come up to New York just for a few years to get the, you know, experience of working in New York and he was gonna go back down to Florida and then he met me at the party. Uh, it was not love at first sight, but uh, we certainly got along. And at the party, there were women just kind of hanging all over him. And I thought, well, this guy has possibilities. So, uh, you know, we started dating and uh, we met uh, January 29th, 1972. And we were married October 12th, 1974. Oh, my gosh. That's fantastic. Well, you've undersold him a little bit because you said, I think, in, in, in our conversation that he was shot down. and He, he, he won was. The he was uh, in Vietnam the first day of the Tet Offensive. I didn't know him then. And the bullets came up through the floor of the plane and landed in his ankle. He was flying with a major, and uh, afterwards he was in a field hospital, which was scary because, you know, the nurses had to come and move him underneath a cot because they were being bombed. And uh, he came back to the States, and he was in a vet hospital for six months, I think. And during that time, he took a business course, uh, he was a business major at Stetson University here in Florida. And, uh, and then he made his way to New York, and he only knew a few people. But uh, he wanted to get into um, finance, as I mentioned, and had a tough time getting a job because they all were hiring, being the North, people from Ivy League schools. And of course, he didn't come from an Ivy League right. So what he did was find, he found out who the employment agencies were that were hiring and went through that way, found out, you know, like 
who was uh, hiring for uh, from Blythe Eastman Dillon, who was hiring for Morgan Stanley. And he would take a job anywhere in the firm, like, you know, in accounting, which he said was boring, but it got him into the firm. And then after that, when a job came up on the floor, he would take that and he started excelling after that. So, you know, that's so fun to hear the journey because I think it's helpful for listeners. Yeah. To know that you don't start at the top, you know, you, you know, you have to try to get in, you have to try to make your way and, and show up. Yeah. Um, so he's self-made. Yes, he is. And, uh, and he's from rural Georgia. Is that what he, what, if I'm yes, right? he grew up, uh, outside of Atlanta in a town called Lithonia. Mm. And his uh, great-grandfather, who he knew, was a Scottish stonecutter near Aberdeen and came over to Lithonia because it means place of rock. So there were quarries there. Uh, and the Davidsons, you know, uh, built it up to be quite a business. You know, they a lot of granite for banks and poultry grit and and but anyway he did know his great great grandfather who was in the south with the scottish accent and uh then his family uh sold the business and uh sandy's immediate family they moved to fort lauderdale florida and so he uh spent time there that was in the 10th grade and he graduated wow. from high school there and uh, it's yeah. it's unusual i knew my great-grandparents uh and grew up in a rural part of the country wyoming yeah. but my mother's whole side of the family are scottish mcfarland mcleod purdy slightly yeah. scottish yeah. yeah and so you know the german scottish the good news is we're very flexible i'm not stubborn at all like you know everybody's so <laughs> easy going yeah. uh, i yeah. love that yeah so, and then you had two kids? Yes, both adopted. Mm -hmm. um, Graham uh, is the older of the two. He was born in 83, and he's the one we lost to drugs in 2016. And then Lee was born in 88. So there's five-year difference between the two of them. And they were adopted in New York at a private agency. It was a closed adoption. So was it difficult to adopt? Um, Do you remember? It was uh, the first time they really check you out, you know. And you have to have letters written. And, the, and we thought at that time we were told we could only get one child. And... After uh, we received Graham in November 88, uh, we were told that we could adopt a second child. So that's why we were able to uh, adopt a daughter. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. So they have a, then do they have a normal childhood? Yes, I think they did. Um, we moved from the city to uh, Westchester County, oh, in Chappaqua, nice. New York. Uh, we were about 45 minutes from my mother and my sister who lived in Connecticut. Um, 
they went to good schools and you know had a backyard and and fairly nice house and uh, they had friends i think graham because he had been in in uh different foster parents homes um was had a bit of trauma that he never got over uh, he did not like the fact he was adopted and i think that weighed on him his whole life mm. lee couldn't care less our daughter you know, really? I remember once I thought, well, maybe she's hiding something from me. Maybe she really does have issues. And I took her to a teen talk. It was like group therapy mm-hmm. at Spence Chapin, uh, the adoption agency. And I asked her at the end how it went. And she said, I thought it was ridiculous. She said, I have a mother, a father, and a dog. I'm perfectly happy. So, I mean, that's the difference between the two children. Wow. Right there, yeah. When did you know Graham was gay? I found out through a letter that he had written. He never actually came out and said it. Okay. So that was when he was about 13, but I think he was conflicted Hmm. because he had a crush on a girl in his class in middle school, and I would always have to drive him over after school to see Christine, who he said he was going to marry. So that, I think, was another issue for him. Mm. And as his sister Lee said, this was the 90s, and it wasn't cool to be gay. Mm -hmm. you know. So I think that weighed on him as well. Yeah, I I think it was... uh... You know, you do everything you can to not to, to, to not talk about being gay. And, and, and the therapists that I've had and people I've talked to that are very knowledgeable in this area said it's not unusual for a gay man who of that age era uh, went out of your way to do everything really well. I mean, you would you would be you'd excel in school, you'd excel at sports, you'd dress beautifully, you'd have great humor, you tell stories, you you know, have a great body, whatever, to to just keep the conversation deflected off yeah. of the topic you didn't want to talk about because you were so scared of people rejecting you. So I think that that probably I, I think feeds into it. And then so go on, tell me a little more. So how how the evolution of Graham, like I know there was a parallel path about him being gay, and then also he uh, discovered was it alcohol or drugs or what did he just, how did his, I think are- like most people um, that I've read about, they start with alcohol and marijuana. Okay. And um, Lee, at a young age, uh, apparently uh, at, at, uh, in middle school. Oh, now he, uh, it was the thinking back in the day when he was in middle school that he had ADD without a hyperactivity, but they wanted him to be on Ritalin. So he was taking Ritalin. And -hmm. according to Lee, I didn't know this, he was going to school with ecstasy, cocaine, and alcohol. 
And what he was doing, which I didn't realize, he was siphoning off vodka out of a bottle we had. And we thought, and my husband was marking the label, <laughs> saying that it was going down, down, down. But we thought the cleaning service we had <laughs> were the people that were drinking vodka. So we never said anything. But I, Oh, my I, God. I know. <laughs> More cleaning people, but I know, I know. So then, how did you know it was him? Uh, Lee told me later. I was interviewing uh, Lee for the book that uh, I'm working on now, and there's a chapter called "What About Me," mm. and she talks about what she knew oh. that I didn't know. And oh gosh, what was, was so? What did you learn? Things. Well, for example, I didn't realize he was taking all these things to school, you know, these various substances. And uh, the other thing is uh, we had a Cape Cod colonial and it was two bedroom. But when we bought the house, there was room for bedroom over the garage, which the people that sold the house had never um uh, finished, and there also was room for a uh, third bedroom. So we thought we'd turn the second bedroom into a guest room. Lee had the third bedroom, and Graham had the bedroom over the garage. Well, the bedroom over the garage had two exits. One went through the garage, and the other one went to the yard, and we didn't think anything of it. Well, it turns out that Graham was having people come up to his room and he was trading drugs with them and sharing drugs with them. And what they would do is they would park their car on the street, not our driveway, and come up at night. I mean, it was, it was crazy. But because our bedroom was on the other end of the house, and we're sound sleepers. I didn't know this was going on. So I know. <laughs> so when you were talking to your daughter, interviewing your daughter, were your were your mouth was it going? Oh my god! Yeah, I mean, it started uh, to make sense, maybe. Yeah, it it did in a way, but I, you know, I felt badly for her because she's in the middle. She right. knows he's harming himself, but yeah. she can't tell ma mom and dad and rat on her brother. Yeah, so, it's, you know. So <laughs> then, so when did you find out he was, I guess, using or what would be the term? I guess using? Um, uh, or when did you tell it was an addiction or could you tell there was something I going could on? Tell, uh, he did fairly well in school in ninth grade. Uh -huh. Tenth grade, he really fell apart. He didn't look the same. He was very skinny. And, you know, that's when uh, I started being really concerned. And uh, he, he, you know, uh, went to a rehab that was local. And, and then in 10th grade, the school was willing to alter his work to make it easier for him to and he just he didn't even care at that point he had dropped out of school so um oh, he yeah. dropped out he dropped out 
And that was in 10th or 11th grade? 10th or? grade. 10th grade. And I also noticed in 10th grade that uh, there were kids that, you know, this was supposed to be a liberal community, but there there were kids that were uh, teasing him about being gay. So he didn't want to go to school like a lot of kids don't if they're harassed. So. Did he tell you that? Uh, yeah, he did. And I did call one of the parents, but the parent... <laughs> The parents sounded like a bully himself. Well, I'm going to, you know, beat the crap out of, you know, I don't want to say the name of uh, this guy that, that was. Well, it doesn't matter now, but yeah. 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 But I mean, it's not an uncommon trait for people to be bullied, whether they're no, LGBTQ. And it, and it's actually getting worse. With it's getting worse trouble. instead of better. Yeah. Cyberbullying is terrible. So after uh, 10th grade, it was suggested by an independent guidance counselor that he should probably go to a therapeutic boarding school. And that was an 18-month program. And it was basically a lockdown situation. And Graham hated it. I mean, he made friends with mostly girls because they always protected him from the bullies. And, but, you know, there were court-ordered kids there, and Graham was not court-ordered. And so he, he didn't like it, and I think one of the reasons he didn't like it, just to kind of wax psychological, but I think he felt like he was being given up again, like adoption. You know, here oh, we yeah. go again. I see. You know, um, there's something wrong with me and people can't cope with me. And that's why I'm being sent away again. Did he then he stopped using for the 18 months? Well, yeah, there's no way you could use it right. at school. I mean, you know. So then he gets out. He gets out. And I'm fast forwarding this because. Yeah. You know, it's he gets wanna... out, he comes home, and he's the first night he's off to New York with his friends that he hasn't seen in a long time and using ecstasy, you know. So he's back. He's back, you know, with all this. So did you did you and your husband uh, I know this is a stupid question. I'm sure you tried to intervene, you you told me you sent him to rehab. You you did all these things, we did right? Multiple rehabs, as Graham said, we threw money at it, you know. But um, did it work? Uh, no, it didn't. <laughs> but it's not unusual to right. go to a lot of rehabs. But um, I think part of the problem is, uh, you know, I've got some statistics that if you start using drugs. Uh, substances before you're 21, your chances are greater of developing a real substance abuse disorder because okay. A, your prefrontal co cortex, which is used for judgment and evaluation, isn't developed. And you've been, you know, you've been using drugs longer than, than the person who starts later it's much harder to get you have a real dependence on it excuse me excuse me yes you thanks so much for listening to the rainbow bull 
We hope you're enjoying it so far. And if you have any questions or would like to talk more about this topic, you can find us at www.tvolco.com. And all our social media platforms are listed in the show notes. So the rehabs didn't work. He no. comes out of rehab and what he decided he wanted to leave home. I mean, he obviously had a welcoming home. Yes. But at some point, you guys, I mean, what did you learn about this? What would you like to tell other parents or other well, uh, siblings? I think, I think you really have to investigate where you're sending your child. I mean, most of these rehabs are 28 days. They're in the middle of nowhere. So they're sequestered. And um, they do a little group therapy, a little detoxing, but that's it. And they don't make a lot of recommendations of what you should be doing once you're out. For example, Paris Hilton went to a boarding school in Provo, Utah, and she's making a documentary right now. She was raped. She was put in solitary confinement. Um, you really Paris have to, yes you you have to be very careful and most of the rehabs are for profit so and a lot of kids can run away because they're not minors and I think parents should get in writing what happens if your child leaves do you get some of the money back because they're not cheap and so I would do that. The other thing, you know, I learned is you really can't fix a kid, especially if they're of majority age. And uh, you have a little more control if they're younger because you can put them, uh, you know, in a hospital or, or something. And, and uh, But once they turn majority age, uh, they just sign them out they sign themselves out of wherever they are. Um, so that's a problem. And the other thing is, I think you have to hold your kids accountable. We were kind of loosey-goosey about that. We were, uh, like I kicked our son out uh, of the house in Florida here because he was uh, using drugs, which I found. But then I would feel badly about it, and I put him up at the Holiday Inn. Now, so, <laughs> you know, I mean, if you're going to hold your child accountable, you don't do something like that. So, you know, you have to, you have to learn that, you know, that you allow yourself to be manipulated by doing something like that. You have to be... Uh, stricter i think and um which is not easy no it's not because you know a parental inclination is to help a child who's struggling and you know when they're younger you can withdraw a dessert if they're not behaving or you send them to your room or you know you can't do that when they're older how did he die He died uh, in California. That was his third trip. And he had been sober for a while. And what happened was he had uh, crystal meth in his system. 
which is very prominent in the gay community. Very. Highly addicted. And I think he probably started out at the same dose he was used to and instantly had a heart attack. So Why did you write the book? I wrote the book because I couldn't find the book I wanted, but this is going back in the 1990s. Okay. And the books I found at Barnes and Noble, you know, they they didn't even use the word gay. They had um they they referred to people as homosexual. They um so I I figured if if I had issues other parents must as well. And so I wrote the book and I found a psychiatrist who happens to be gay. Mm -hmm. And so with, you know, I wrote from a parent's point of view and I correlated the chapters with the different issues that uh, mm -hmm. were raised. Um, and um so I interviewed uh, LGBT um, people who were under 40, because I figured the ones that were over 40 would have different experience than the younger ones. Right. And I would get their impression of how they worked through an issue that was addressed in that chapter. And, um, and then the psychiatrist, would comment at the end of each chapter in a section called the doctor is in and he would give the takeaway message mm -hmm. and we kind of set up the book like if you're familiar with um kubler ross the swiss psychiatrist who mm -hmm. thinks you should work through stages like anger and fear and shame and uh, to get to total acceptance of the child. And so we set it up like that. And um, it, it was an interesting experience. And in writing the book, I saw the connection between the gay population and the high usage of drugs. So that kind of morphed into wanting to write about addiction. And so the, the interviews, you interviewed, what was that, 100, 100 families, 100 kids? I don't remember, 40 kids? I don't remember the number of kids. Um, you, uh, you interviewed a lot of you interviewed Yeah, a lot. I, I interviewed parents, I interviewed kids, and uh, you mean when your child is gay, you're talking yeah. about? Yeah, when you're- the, about the, the first book. interviews per chapter. Yeah. So- um, yeah, there were, and there were uh, five chapters, I believe. So. Did you, what did you learn? Like, how did people react to the book? Did you learn anything or were there any ahas? I mean, obviously the aha with the gay community, the addiction factor being higher. Right. That's a big aha. Right. And also, you know, school uh, harassment was mm -hmm. a thing. Uh, but the other thing I found out... Um, was there's a higher, what they call comorbidity, you know, a higher incident of mental health conditions that gays have. 
And when I say gays, I mean lesbians and bisexuals and certainly transgenders really have problems with suicide. Yeah. And so, uh, yes, you know, and, you know, now I just saw in the New York Times about the mental health of kids now and not just gay kids, but um, in general. The emergency room visits are, are just, I mean, if you want to hear, I'll just quickly tell you, uh, is up 4.8 million to 7.5 million from 2011 to 2020. So, and six, year old, six to 24 year olds are coming in to the emergency room. The emergency rooms used to be for, you know, you break your leg or you crash or something, and now they're coming in for mental health. So I think one of the things I wanted to ask, and I know it's a delicate thing, is that you can speak to loss in a very unique way. I don't think any parent should ever lose their child. It's just not the natural order way we think of things. It's not how we do estate planning. It's not how we all are geared to think. So. Can you speak to the loss? Can you just tell people? I know you had a cute story about you said people were wonderful between the, the death and the funeral. Well, but, I think uh, there's this whole phenomenon now because kids are predeceasing their parents' death because of fentanyl and these other drugs. So there really is no etiquette for how, you know, you're so-called friends should be uh following up with you i'll put it that way i mean Mm. when they found out it was great you got casseroles you got flowers and then you know you got the mass cards and you got uh condolence notes but that all stops after the funeral and i think people they don't know what to say to you that's the thing they think that they might be dragging you into a dark place that you may uh, not want to remember. And I think it's the opposite. I think they should be supporting you Mm. and talking to you. And also it keeps the person who's dead alive. Um, Yeah, I like that. Yeah. It's... um, and the other thing is, uh, in the first book I wrote, you know, Kubler-Ross has definite stages and feels that you can come to total acceptance of a loss. I feel, just writing the second book, I don't feel that way. There's something called ambiguous loss. Okay. And there's a, she's a PhD, her name is Pauline Boss. She's written papers about this. And to me, I think the loss goes on forever. And you just have to deal with it uh, daily and work it into your life. There's uh, probably not a, a day goes by where you don't think about Graham. No, I don't. And and just, you know, I, I kind of keep him alive. Like uh, I watch Wheel of Fortune because that was his favorite show. Or I listen to James Taylor on the radio because he liked him. And, um, you know, and Lee does the same thing. She's got a, 
he he really likes Snoopy, and he's buried with Snoopy, his stuffed animal. She's got a Snoopy tattoo on her. She's got his uh, initials and uh, the date he was born on her leg. And, you know, I think that's her way also of keeping him alive, you know. So he was a very good looking. You told me he was very good looking. Oh, he's very handsome. And uh, smart. When he wanted it, he was very clever. Obviously more clever than everybody knew, even at a young age. Right, right, exactly. So I think... You know, when you wrote the book and now you're writing the new book, we're going to touch on the new book in a minute. But the is there something you wanted to say to either other LGBTQ people or to the parents that you haven't said after you wrote the first book? I think when you have um, LGBTQ uh, kids that you have to let them uh tell you i think they know more than you do so this is reversing the roles that you know you have to listen to them because they know best and also i think there's a way to get uh, a gay child to open up you can't just say look i think you're gay you're not playing football you're in drama or whatever I think you can go in through the back door. You can say, oh, I saw this program the other night and, it, you know, it was on gay kids. And uh, do you think this is true? Or do you know anybody at school that's gay? You, you know, you don't confront them directly, but you, there might be issues you can discuss together. And also, I think, you know, parents, well, it's in the book too, Parents should treat their gay child as they do their heterosexual child. If a child is dating, I think, you know, if Susie, who's heterosexual, is having her boyfriend at dinner, I think you should allow your gay child to bring uh, their boyfriend to dinner so that there's no discrepancy in how they're being raised or feeling ashamed. To show everybody it's okay. Yeah. I think things have changed for the better, but I still think, you know, it's not a one-shot discussion. You have to keep it up and say, how are things in school? And, uh, you know, mm. fi find out what's going on in their yeah. life. I think it's, I don't think it's a one-shot either. I think there's a, a comfort level that comes with a little more discussion and prep and, I was, uh, unfortunately, I was outed and my little sister and I talk about it now uh, because she's, uh, she's a, a, she's now with a woman. So she's, she's now lesbian. And so she and I talk, we kind of laugh about it. But the time she outed me to my dad, um, because she overheard a conversation with my now husband and I talking on the phone. And so the family went nuts. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a lot of dynamic that goes on. I've written about it. I've written a couple of white papers about this, but the comedy was that um, you know, we weren't going to go to my grandmother's house for dinner for Christmas or for, I think one of the holidays. And she was not happy. So she, I didn't know how to meet him with my dad and uncle and then and just said, look, it's enough. You got to stop. Tim's yeah. gay. His boyfriend is John. He's lovely. I want him to come to dinner. I don't want to hear anything more about it. And she was, she had the matriarch of the family yeah. 
yeah. kind of laid it down. And I think my dad and my my dad and my uh, uncle, my my family's been very warm and accepting since. But I think as any any time it happens, you know, there's a I don't want to call it a shock factor, but I think there's sort of a a, a bit of a surprise that that when it when you discuss it. And so even though I've been dealing with it for many years you all of a sudden uh, was discussing it. it. It may be something I want to discuss right now. And you could have been having a bad day where your book isn't being done right or something. And it, it catches you off guard. And so as an, in human beings say things they shouldn't say sometimes, or we don't react the way we really want to react until you have to kind of have to process it. So I don't know. I, I, I really applaud your willingness to come forward and help others with this. I think you've taken a very dark and sad situation. And I think in your, in Graham's honor, you really have done him proud to reach out and help all of us and help the whole world. And so I'm, I'm really excited that you're willing to do and talk about this, but I really wanted to have you sort of talk a little prep about what you're doing now. What's, what's so exciting about the new project you're working on? Um, I think it's exciting because it's, helping parents who are desperate for answers and they're stuck uh, in the middle of trying to intervene and it's not working. So uh, I'm hoping that the book, which will contain interviews of uh, reformed substance abusers will lend their knowledge to uh, what helped them get sober. So it's not, it, it has memoir characteristics, but it's not a straightforward memoir. It's uh, interviews with people who have been affected, uh, other parents who have lost and what they've learned about the loss. And, uh, but I think it will be helpful. Eventually, I'd like to uh, work with an organization like uh, Bring Change to Mind. If you thought of, do you know that organization? Mm -hmm. that Glenn Close, Glenn Close runs an organization. She has a lot of bipolar disorder in her family, and uh, she has emissaries, if you want to call them, that go into schools and talk to kids about mental illness and that there shouldn't be a shame to it. And a lot of, um, I think the LGBT group is numbing themselves because mm -hmm. they have mental health conditions. I mean, you know, if people are harassing you at school and uh, not accepting, you would have problems, even if they're, you know, as simple as anxiety, they're, you know, but uh, I think there are more helpful things out there now. I remember Graham told me when he did go to support groups that there's one called Smart Recovery now, mm -hmm. uh, which is more kind of ego-centered. It relies more on the individual than it does on the notion of, uh, you know, the higher power, the God, you know. Uh, which the rehabs all have the you know twelve step programs, but this is new, and uh, I think there's more of an opening up about uh, addiction. Um, 
I know there's a, a representative in uh, Pennsylvania. Her last name is Dean. She's a Democrat. And she and her son have written a book. He He's a recovered addict. He's been in uh, recovery now for about nine years. So you're writing about, you're putting this in your book too? No, I'm not putting it in the book, but I'm saying uh, okay. a lot of memoirs are being written. I think people are well, that's good. open. And she's a, you know, she's a public figure because she's a representative yeah. in Pennsylvania. And she's writing the book with her son, who has <laughs> been in recovery for a long time. What was Glenn Gloss's organization again called? Bring, Bring Change to Mind. I love that. I can hardly wait because I'd like to have you back to the show to talk about the new book okay. when it's ready to go. And, uh, you know, we may. It's supposed to come out in May of next year. <laughs> I love this. You, you, you really thank you for being such an advocate and helping those people that don't have a voice and also being there for all of us. I just you don't know how much it means to me being a a gay man and and uh i would love you to connect to my mom i think you guys would have a lot in common so it's it's just great in the sense that my great moms great moms and uh, helping others so patrice what do you think anything else we should talk about well i think we definitely need to get wesley back here for a second uh part to the the series here yep. and we also will have wesley will have links to your book in the show notes yes tim yep okay definitely that and then Tim, if people have questions for you to pass on to Wesley, how can they reach you? Uh, just email me at tim.volk at tvolkco.com or call me at 312-636-5855 and happy to connect you with Wesley. It's also, Wesley, you have your own website. It's uh, wesleydavidson.com. Is that what it is? That's right. And I have two blogs on it, When Your Child is LGBT and When Your Child is Addicted. And I started a Facebook group, Kids on Drugs, Signs, Risk, and How to Get Help. And again, all in the show notes. Make sure you get in there, Tim. I don't know if you can see this. This is Yeah, that's great. I love it. We'll have a link to it. We will have it. All right. Good. Well, Wesley, thank you so much. Thank you. It was fascinating. Tim, great show. And listener, follow this podcast. Share it with others. You know who needs it. I'm Patrice Sikora. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for listening to the Rainbow Bull Podcast. Visit our website at www.tvolco.com or give us a call at 312-636-5855. And don't forget to click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of T. Volk and Company Consulting. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.